Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There are just some breathtaking examples of what I can only describe as abuse by hospitals and insurance companies of patients. Now, all of us as patients, we have strength that we didn't have before. We can make a hell of a lot of noise that wasn't possible a long, long time ago. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, another fantastic Wayback Machine episode with Brian Lowe, the CEO of Inspire. Brian is one of the early adopter pioneers of what we now call digital health, which has spawned the current spate of myriad online patient communities, each of whom creates safe spaces of support and ideally engenders the necessary life hackery to make whatever it is you're there for suck a little less. As someone who's currently doing nothing even related to what he studied in undergraduate, Brian and I commiserate on just how meaningful his BA and BS in physics and economics have come in just so handy these days. Listen in as Brian and I debate the semantic virtues, or lack thereof, in consumer protection versus patient-centric care. We also opine on the state of the state facing communities of color, how Inspire is addressing disparities, and my oh my, the abuse of patients by hospitals, healthcare systems, and the insurance industry happening in plain sight every day. So prepare yourself for some serious name dropping as we hop in our DeLorean and channel life before social media to give credit where credit is due to the original our gang of upstart rapscallions that comprise the Health 2.0 movement. Enjoy the show. Brian Lowe, it's a Wayback Machine show. Yay! I hit the button, we're recording. Okay, good, good. Great to be here. I'm really glad we're we're talking, and uh, it's wonderful to, to hear your voice. Yeah, I, you, you probably saw my feed. I, I talked to uh, just talked to Matt Holt. By the time this show broadcasts, the Matt Holt oh, show good. will be up on my feed. I just talked the other day to Missy Krasner, just out of shits and giggles, because she's awesome. Terrific. And I talked to you know Jane Sarrington Khan and Susanna Fogg. I'm going back right. back in time, and so I mean, yeah, I, I appreciate your telling me it was great to hear from me but i've never really gone away we've never gone away my, my first my first question for you is how the hell are we still here i know i know it's been a really long time um it's been it's been about 15 years believe it or not which blows my mind when we think about that what is yeah. that in digital health dog years oh god about 500 yeah <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah it, i've said to someone i don't know if it feels like a long time or a short time because on different days it's both it's both you know um in some in some ways it feels like the world has changed dramatically. In other ways, it feels like sort of nothing has changed, and we're we're still still in the beginning. Yeah, it's like the what's the the hamster wheel, right? It's just a hamster Definitely. wheel. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for o- sure. Only now it's solar power too. 
Right, with it, occasional bursts of inspiration. It's a hybrid yeah. hamster wheel. It's a hybrid <laughs> hamster wheel. It's, it's an electric hamster wheel. You know, I, I don't need to do a lot of digging on you because I've known you a long time, but I did find right. one particular thing that I just need the listeners to know. If you don't know about Brian Lowe, he lists his high school on LinkedIn. All right, all right, not fair. Okay. That's <laughs> you have to explain this to me. Why do you no. list your high school on this is a lot of pride? Were you like I the, don't know. the Pirates or the Panthers or something? What were God, you? I'm not I don't want to be one of those people that like goes all the way back and tells you uh, about my like high school sports or anything. Um I went to Thomas Jefferson Science and Tech, which by the way, when I when I went there it was kind of a place for misfit geeks interested in science. Um, today, it's become this incredibly competitive place that everyone knows about. But um, you know, I don't even know if I could get in if I applied today. Uh, but at the time, it was it was for kids who were really interested in science. Um, you so know, it was and a I low did a, bar, low bar back then. Yeah, and I like you know my proudest achievement was my Westinghouse Science Fair project kind of thing. But that was a long time ago. I think I. I probably mentioned it when when I first joined LinkedIn a long time ago. I, I should take it off now. I'm a little wait. Was that <laughs> a like a of... baking soda and vinegar volcano? Like mine? oh, it was even more advanced. Yeah, yeah, we got we got pretty pretty advanced. Um, I will say that the Thomas Jefferson has like the most extraordinary uh, laboratories that I've ever that I've ever seen in in a high school and most universities. But it's a it's a great place. But it's become now just so competitive that you know I think you have to be able to levitate to get in. So I don't know if I'd make it. So in in the continuing spirit of my digging on your LinkedIn, you have to talk to me about well, in the life before the internet universe. You worked for a company called WorldWeb. Oh no, I started it. Yeah, you started that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before you get before you explain, I want to say my trigger when I heard that was the Simpsons episode where he started an internet company and it was called Compu Hyper Global Meganet. <laughs> Yeah, I started that company in 1993. Um, I was straight out of school. I mean, the story there was I worked at Nature. My first, well, my second job was at um, Nature, the Science Journal. And in sort of 1993, I took an issue of Nature Structural Biology, and two friends and I essentially created a website with this issue of Nature Structural Biology. And we showed it, and this was before there were really um, many websites at all. And we showed it to the president of Nature America who looked at it, and this is an incredible, this was like from 1993, and he said, yeah, I've heard about this web thing. Um, we're not sure it's going to catch on. And so I left Nature and started a company because I think that's what you do, right? Because I said, I said, I think there's a chance for Nature to be, um, we could get this domain name, nature.com, and it could be the center for science on the internet. And, you know, I just, I tried very hard. I couldn't persuade people that was a big deal. Um, so I started an internet company that was called World Web, and we built websites. And then I went through the whole dot-com entrepreneurial roller coaster and almost went public. And it's like a, it's a story that I'll tell you someday over many beers. But yeah, I've, I've been an entrepreneur for forever. So that BS and BA in physics and economics has come in very handy. Oh, very, very handy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never I mean, heard I was that the kid who sold. Yeah. That's a crazy combination, like BA and it BS. And, how did that blend? What, what bullion base comes of those two? I mean, I was always interested in, in both, and then it reached a point where I really couldn't decide between them, and I four years of school ended up being five years of school, and I, I got an undergrad degree in both. The thing I'll say is that physics made economics look easy. You know, I, I really admire people who – I have incredible awe for people who go on to get a PhD in physics because I have a glimpse of how hard it is. But um, I, I guess I would say both subjects are examples of things that uh, help you better understand the world, even if you don't, you know, quote-unquote, use them. 
I'm having the same conversations with my son now about math saying, you know, the sort of, why should I learn calculus? Well, even if you don't use it, you definitely understand things more deeply. And so I feel like it was a good grounding in many, in many ways. I would contend that they're both highly consensus building practices as well. Oh gosh. Yeah. And I hate that part of it in some ways because a lot of the best innovation comes from areas where there's not consensus, right? Or where you have to re reject consensus um, to build something great. So how many times have you disputed people that say, that's not what theory means? Right, right. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Or if you think about starting a company, you know, all the people that you just mentioned, many of us in the kind of health space or health entrepreneurial space have had to do so when everyone called us crazy. I mean, it was true for Inspire, you know, the company. It was true for, I think, all the other people that you've kind of mentioned, right? You know, Jane Sarenson Khan and all the early, early people were people who said like, no, this, this is not the way it should be. I reject consensus. This needs to change. All right. So let's talk about this. I feel like there's a gap year in your resume between like the dot-com explosion <laughs> and the start of Inspire. This, is, this feels like a medical exam. Are you, you're really going deep here. I'm putting my gloves on, bro. All right. All right. So where were you? What, what, what was the, uh, the pre, post 9-11, pre-Bush first term? Like what were you doing in health and how did you come to that reconciliation of, Jesus, if I don't do this, it won't get done with our, oh, sure. with our rapscallion uh, crowd at the time? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, I sold WorldWeb.net after the dot-com roller coaster that I'll tell you someday on a second show uh, <laughs> about, <laughs> about masochism. And then um, I had a board member who was the former president of the Washington Post company. And he said, hey, um, I think there's some interest in you going to the Washington Post to do technology strategy. So I had this kind of role that didn't exist uh, before that. And it was just at the time that um, WashingtonPost.com was emerging. And there were incredible political fights between the website and the newspaper. Um, you have to imagine the time when the newspaper was at, at its absolute peak. So this was 2000, the year 2000, when its revenues were probably, for the old print version, were probably the highest they've ever been. And then um, here was the website that was, you know, strongly emerging. So I joined sort of at that moment. It was kind of an amazing three years. Essentially, there were extraordinary people there, and I made great friends um, and did really interesting things. But it was a company with four thousand people, and I think I felt I just couldn't handle that much bureaucracy. You know, I had ideas that I wanted to crank out over a weekend, and I could find sort of some fellow people who wanted to do it with me. But there was just too much friction in getting anything done. And by the way, that's not about the Washington Post. That's true of probably most large companies. Most people don't remember the fraughtness between the digital version and the print version of media right. when they were strifing in the streets pretty much like like in Anchorman 2 when all the news crews were fighting in, in the streets at the same time with their with – their <laughs> you threw a trident. <laughs> you yeah. threw a trident. Oh, that's right. And I remember vividly one argument, which kind of carries over into the medical space that we're talking about, which is um, I was in a meeting once with really senior editors at the Washington Post, and one of them was literally pounding a table saying, we will not allow our readers to comment on our stories, which now you can't even imagine that concept, right? right. But this was a time when a writer who, by the way, if you were a writer at the Washington Post, you were a rock star. You're one of the best writers in the world, right? A writer would write a story and that was it. You know, and if and maybe you'd write a letter to the editor if you really felt strongly about it. But if you look at the New York Times or the Washington Post today, you have incredible responses from readers. And of course, that's the norm now, right? Similarly, if you looked at the health space back then, the idea that you could give feedback to your doctor, let alone question or challenge your doctor, was anathema. That didn't happen. I mean, the world has really changed a lot in 20 years. So 
solve all of the problems of the world in one word. <laughs> oh my gosh. Those are three words. Yeah, not the whole world, but I think for health and, and this, I've been listening to your, your other podcasts, the, the hill that I will die on will be patient at the center or patient centricity. If we can really think of the patient being at the center of everything in health and really behave that way, then, then we'll have succeeded, I think. Let me float an idea into your head because this has been ruminating in my mind since I left stupid cancer and it, it kind of flips the way we think about what we do is our end user is the patient. But if we're talking about a person, an American citizen, and something bad happens to that person and they go into a uh, supply-only economy, is this really more about protecting them to make sure that they have awareness of choice and navigation? Are we, are we looking more of a consumer protection philosophy or dogmatic principle than looking at it as patient-centered care? I think so many things are done in the name of protection that are not protective at all. There are so many times when there's kind of the, you know, don't worry your pretty little head about that. You know, I've got the right answers. I think oftentimes, I think what I hear from most patient activists is kind of like, you know, we don't need your stinking protection. Now, obviously some people do need different kinds of protection, but that's a horrible mindset to be in. It leads to all sorts of bad things in medicine when the idea is, we're not going to tell you everything. We're just going to give you a fraction of the information. You know, we're going to protect you. I think that's a bad mindset to start with. I can't think of any analog other than something that really is apples to apples or apples to oranges or apples to you know ugly fruit or whatever, which is you know how, sure. how Ralph Nader in the 60s forced the hand of the insurance companies to pay for seatbelts because they didn't want to pay out claims data. And right. he was like America's public advocate for safety, right? right? So is there an analog to that today that exists? If you look at the health insurance I've had a couple of personal experiences with um, with hospitals and with insurance companies that make me feel sort of absolutely miserable. And I know that I'm not alone because there's a huge amount, you know, in Inspire, we have, you know, millions of members and, you know, a billion and a half words that they've written. And I know that it's a constant topic of conversation. It's one of these subjects that if you just go along quietly and pay your increasing insurance bills and follow all the instructions, you don't feel the full pain of it all. But if you heaven forbid, if you challenge or ask a question or try to find out what a procedure costs or ask why your CT scan was $9,000 on Tuesday and $15,000 on Wednesday, you get depressed really, really quickly. Either you get depressed or angry or both. And um, I know it's not necessarily the topic of this, but I feel like maybe we should have a part two talking about affordability and access to care. Um, there's an incredible, I forget the name of the writer, but there's an incredible series of stories in the New York Times right now about where the writer asked patients to submit their hospital bills during COVID or during coronavirus, in a time of coronavirus. They're just some breathtaking examples of what I can only describe as abuse by hospitals and insurance companies of patients. And I think there's a way out of it, which is now we, now all of us as patients, we have strength that we didn't have before. We can come together and make a hell of a lot of noise that wasn't possible a long, long time ago. If you go back to what Nader was doing, was sort of exposing this problem that had to be solved. We're now in a position to do that. Maybe Nader would be an amplifier, but frankly, we can build the voice ourselves with you know millions of patients who now suddenly are able to come together and, and make their point loudly. Back with our guest after the break.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So let's talk about our origin story. And I would say like the the gangly group of Margaret Mead people that convened in 2005 or six, and we're figuring out what the hell we're going to do together. And, you know, some of us are still here. We're going to name a lot of names on the show because we're, I feel like we're all mishpach. We're all kind of right. still above the tulips, as my dad would say. And, and we're still just as kind of disenfranchised, but yet where can we point to progress? What went through your mind in terms of, I'm going to start this. So the idea was going briefly back to the Washington Post. I was fortunate enough to get to know the guy who was running. His name was Ralph Turkowitz. He was running the venture groups, the investments for the Washington Post, and he had this idea. He took me along to a lot of to a lot of the meetings to help due diligence on all these tech companies that the Post would consider investing in. And uh, at the time, the Post wanted to invest in a social network. So we looked at every conceivable social network you can imagine, you know, sports, dating, every everything in the world. And as we looked at probably forty early social networks, my wife was involved in uh, for pharma pharma dot org pharmaceutical association, um, but she was head of science and regulatory affairs. And I met all of these heads in R and D at companies with infinite money, right? Pharma companies with billion dollar, multi billion dollar R and D budgets, and all of them talked about the same problem. They said recruiting for clinical trials is slow and all sorts of other stuff. And so these two things going on, I was learning about social networks and I was learning about this problem in recruiting. And so I think like so many businesses, I thought, well, I don't know what's impossible. So I'll just completely disrupt the clinical trial recruitment, right? I'll get a couple of friends together and we'll blow up this $40 billion a year problem, right? I mean, it was incredibly naive. I had no right to be doing this, right? So what I thought was, let's build a social network of patients organized by disease area and invite them to join clinical trial problems. You'll solve the uh, the agency problem, you'll you'll solve all sorts of things. So that was the idea, right? And it was literally just, here's a great idea. I approached some of the angel investors who had invested in my first company and raised a, a seed round, got some friends together, built a prototype, and then was audacious enough to reach out to all of these patient advocacy organizations, which was wonderful. It was an idea that came from this friend who said, I can introduce you to a bunch of patient advocacy groups. Why don't you go talk to them and build their communities? This woman is named Valerie Volpe. She's wonderful. And one of the first people she introduced me to was um, Kathy Russell, who was at the Children's Inn at the NIH, which for your listeners who may know that the Children's Inn at the NIH is where children with cancer and rare disease go. It's a beautiful place where they're 
their families can stay with them while they're under treatment in clinical trials at the NIH. And Kathy Russell was, she's extraordinary. She listened to what we said. She said, I understand you've never done this before, but let's go for it. And so they were our first partner. We went through extraordinary um, medical and legal review with the NIH. We used that to build our privacy policy in terms of use. And then we were off and running. We then continued to sign up these patient advocacy groups. So early ones like Women Heart and Ovarian Cancer National Alliance and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, Osteoporosis Foundation. And we just grew and grew and grew from there. And then, you know, like so many stories, we found ourselves at the Health 2.0 conference, right? Which I think you've referred to where, were you playing the piano there? Yeah. Matt, 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 John and Indu like somehow found me through Missy at Google and like, you should come be our... I mean, we joked today about like tokenism and patient advocacy. I was kind of the only cancer guy there, but right. I wasn't there to like be the monkey grinder kid on the stage. I was just like enjoying playing piano and learning because I was in full recon mode. I was part with Livestrong. I was part with some policy groups in the Hill. And right. I'm like, what is all this then too? And it was just exciting to meet, you know, like version 1.0. He called it health too. It was like human 1.0. Right. You know, there was something going on there that in hindsight is kind of extraordinary, which was that you very loudly were saying like, you know, I had cancer, right? And there were other people there. I don't know if they were there or there were subsequent meetings, but it wasn't just Matt Holt and Indu. You had Jamie and Ben Haywood talking about their brother. You had Gene Sorensen Khan. You had, you know, some of the other people I think about, right? Susanna Fox, who was very loudly talking about a lot of the ideas that it was almost like prescient, sort of the ideas that would become important later. I think of Kerry Sparling and Amy Tenderich and type 1 diabetes, which is an area I care a lot about, who were essentially saying, like, I am a patient, right? I have this disease. Let me tell you about it. And people like ePatient Dave, who were incredibly open about their personal health journey. And if, like, if you think about our parents' generation, let alone probably when we were little kids, like, you didn't talk about these things. No one, no one talked about their cancer, right? My mother told me that, you know, people would have a heart attack and, and it was just sort of, expected. And then it was this quiet thing that never, no one ever talked about. I think it was the first time in my life where I'd been at a place where people were just openly talking about their personal health, like forever. It was, it was incredible. Well, I mean, bro, I was diagnosed in 96. It was still like a whisper thing. Matt's got the cancer, you know? Right, right. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. And the, I think you were most vividly the person who was out there saying like, yeah, I had it. What do you want to know? I'll talk to you for an hour about my cancer, which I'd never met anyone in my life like that. Um, and then here we are, we're all together and we were all talking loudly about it. And I think that in a lot of ways, it was that mindset which caused the revolution. It wasn't, it wasn't just the technology. It was the fact that suddenly people were okay talking about this. And then as they began to, there was a chorus of uh, voices that joined in and you suddenly felt like, I'm not alone. I can talk about all of these things openly. So l- let me go back to two words that may or may not go together. I know we change terms for sake of sensitivities. This may, may or not be one of them, but social network. So when I hear those words, I still think of the movie. I still think of the movie with Jesse Eisenberg like and, and, and Justin uh, Timberlake, right? I hear social network and I have like a negative reaction to it because we're from the era where that word has now gotten so poisoned in certain circles. Right. And is it more relevant to reconsider it as a, you know, Susanna would say, a peer-to-peer community or, you know, a wisdom of crowd? I mean, do we need jargon? But, you know, what is it these days that's driving consumers who happen to be patients to convene and learn? Right. There's a really important distinction that um, I, I can now say clearly. It took a long a while to sort of figure this out. Think of social networks as horizontal, meaning 
people who are in there don't necessarily have a subject in common, an issue in common versus you know, you used to think of these as niche social networks, a much better word for them is communities, right? Whether it's a community of ovarian cancer, or it's a community of saltwater fish, right? Or it's a community of, you know, stamp collectors. The thing is that all these people have something in common. We see this incredibly vividly in our rare disease communities, where you might be one of 5,000 people in the in the world with a rare disease, but you're in a community now with thousands of those people, and you suddenly feel like everyone understands what you're going through. So, Instead of calling those social networks, let's call things like Inspire, let's call them communities or niche uh, social networks. But they're the opposite of uh, Twitter or Facebook or where really you don't necessarily have a specific thing in common, right? You're just on the same platform. Does that make sense? I feel like, you know, one can overuse the word tribe and tribalism. Yeah, it's a tribe. And, yeah. These are tribes. Yeah, no, it's a good word. It, th- these are tribes rather than... Cults. Not cults. Definitely not yeah. cults. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. No, 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 no. In fact, there's a lot of diversity of thought inside these inside these communities. And, it, and I guess tribe might be edging towards that. We're not talking about thinking the same way. We're talking about having a very specific thing in common and yeah. then all the diversity that can come from that. Yeah, not CBS survivor kind of tribe. <laughs> that's right. So let's dig into something really sensitive and really extra relevant these days. I talk about the the ebb tide of progress, reveals things that then become your next progress to achieve. Sure. You have millions of patients on your platform. It's been very successful. You're still here. And there's an endless need for this type of service writ large throughout healthcare, whether it is something crazy bad like cancer or something crazy not so bad or bad-ish like a rare disease. How have you adapted to the disparity conversations. Because I, I, I look at this as it's not about the platform, it's about the messenger and the delivery of the content and communication from that messenger. In a lot of ways, I think of Inspire as a peaceable kingdom where we set up a safe space and you know 90% of the value is created by the patients and caregivers who join it. If we're doing a very, very good job, we are essentially quietly in the background, moderating, making sure that this is safe from, um, that your data are safe, that you know there's not spam or viruses or really toxic behavior. But then if you just watch the, the flowers bloom, right, the, the members themselves are, are creating all the value. There are a lot of things that we sort of do quietly behind the scenes to ensure that everyone is taken care of and protected. But if we do a really good job, we're almost invisible. Do you find that there's been a difference in I would say the user practice on self-policing, has it gotten better or worse? Yeah, I think pure self-policing um, is not enough. So when we when we created Inspire, you know, sort of in the very beginning, the, the closest thing to what we're describing now were um, message boards on Yahoo. And a lot of those just decayed into spam-ridden, bad behavior, bully-driven, you know, sites. And that's because, I'll give you a statistic, we, we ban about one out of every 5,000 members. Um, it's a tiny, tiny number. But I feel like if you didn't ban those people, they could destroy the universe. <laughs> it's incredible the idea that occasionally there's someone who's such a bully that they that they drown out other voices and they make it uncomfortable for other people to speak. Yeah, I think Jack Dorsey once said that you know one percent of the people make ninety five percent of the noise. Uh, I'm sure he's I'm sure he's right. I'm sure he's right. And by the way, like this is a hard. It's hard to know. Um, you know, Gilles Friedman, as you know, who started Acor, you know, way back when, and who was one of the very early guys like us. When I started Inspire, he said, "Let me give you some advice. Don't don't allow discussions of religion or politics on Inspire." And I said, "Why?" And he gave me a whole um, lecture about how these would be incredibly hard. And we made the decision that no, we would allow those discussions because 
I think it was Susanna Fox. Uh, it might have been someone else, but someone said to me, like, you know, if you're a Southern Baptist, you, you're not going to have discussions about your health without talking about religion, right? So you would you'd immediately be drowning out those voices. And so we decided we're going to allow all this, but we're going to set up other rules. So we have rules that we enforce about bad behavior and bullying and stuff like that. And what we found is we have an incredibly talented team of human moderators that inspire, and we're, we've gotten sort of really good at doing that. But some of it was trial and error and learning what works. So I think, yeah, self-policing is good uh, up to a point, but it's necessary, but not sufficient. So in terms of like we also the jargon is solving for access, right? right? How have you found any progress in working with the community cancer centers, which, you know, we've been saying ad nauseum, eight out of 10 people are diagnosed with, or, with cancer or dealing with chronic right. conditions or managing their health in the middle of nowhere. That's right. That's right. And we know from looking at outcomes data that um, on average, the the health outcomes are are better for city than community cancer centers. Like we know that. I feel like it's really interesting. So if you look at Inspire, in, in many ways we have a self-selected population. These are people who have gone out of their way to seek a space, right? So if you look at our lung cancer community, these are people who are actively involved in their disease. Some fraction of them seek to become self-educated, to become citizen scientists, to become super educated. Others don't, right? I think what has changed perhaps is that um, we haven't solved the problem you're describing, but what has changed perhaps is that if you're motivated to learn about what's out there and what's possible, you now have the ability to do so. Whereas years and years ago, you would rely on your local cancer center, cancer center and it was almost impossible to get more information. All right. You have one minute. Okay. Pitch, pitch my listeners. What are you doing? What, what's in it for them? What can they do? We're doing something really cool right now. We've built the, built the Inspire Research Accelerator. We get requests all the time from academics around the world who are trying to do research, um, extraordinarily talented, but they don't have access to the patients. This happens a lot in rare disease and in rare areas in cancer. So we announced at the uh, Orphan Drug Congress a couple of weeks ago that we're now saying, if you're an academic or a nonprofit, um, we will invite Inspire members to participate in your research for free, no cost. We just want to accelerate and enable the scientific and medical research that you are doing. So I would say, if you're interested in that, check out um, inspire.com slash accelerator. And uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to hear from you. Brian Lowe, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology <laughs> alumni and the founder and CEO of Inspire. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Matthew. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.